0: Hey hey Water Coolians, welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. I would like to welcome new listeners from all across the globe to today's episode. It's such a pleasure to be able to share with you and have you become a part of this community we've been uh, we've been creating here. So, welcome. To today's episode, we are remotely joined by speaker, teacher, author Eliza Van Court from New York. Eliza focuses on workplace communication and presentation specifically with a focus on challenges faced by those in underrepresented groups and STEM. Uh, As we mentioned in this episode, she recently launched her YouTube channel, which is dedicated to sharing stories of women claiming space. Her series Women Amplified is now available. And her forthcoming book, A Women's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard, is set to be published by Barrett Kohler in the spring of 2021 as you'll soon hear, hopefully you continue listening, uh, much of this episode delves into the idea of women creating space to share their story. And to tease one of our final conversations in this episode, going into the recording, I, I, to be honest with you, I had a bit of a fear. I'm generally comfortable with most topics, but I came in with that fear because these are situations I don't experience. I may be able to relate in some areas, but these aren't my stories. You know, I've had the opportunity, luckily, to be raised by four amazing women. But even with that, I don't even know if this is the right word, but even with that advantage, that fear still remained. So I appreciate having Eliza on the show to help create this productive conversation, to help move the conversation forward, to help make the conversation more comfortable. As I've mentioned numerous times, this show is more than just a paycheck. At its core, it's my way of becoming a better me. This is how I do that. This is what is comfortable to me. And as we touched upon in episode 16 with Alexander Nedved, sometimes you have to sit in that uncomfortableness, that fear to grow and move forward. I very, very, very much appreciate you, the listener, Whether you've been here from episode one, or this is the first time you get the pleasure of hearing my beautiful voice being on this adventure with me. So in this episode, we have a conversation about the Me Too movement and how the character of James Bond is staying a man in times of change, the divisiveness of Hillary Clinton and what that means for the future of female politicians, and how our clothes can create or destroy our confidence. Uh, a little fun fact for any diehard Roar for Change fans, uh, any video where you did not see below the waist, I may or may not have been wearing pants. I don't know. That's, that's all the hint I'll give on that. So <laughs> without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 37 titled Flip the Script with Eliza VanCourt. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real I know you mentioned like superheroes I just wanted to talk about superheroes real quick before we got into the actual episode I, two episodes ago I talked about like the doom line storyline and people are like all right get out of here with that stuff so what's what's your what's the go-to superhero for oh, you Oh it
1: has to be Wonder Woman it has to be Wonder Woman. My my students actually got me a little, uh, it's like a little towel or something that says, I'm not saying I'm Wonder Woman. I'm just saying Wonder Woman and I have never been seen in the same room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You'd like my aunt. She also is a big fan of uh, Wonder Woman.
1: <laughs> I am deeply obsessed with Wonder Woman. When I was little on the playground, if you wanted to play you had to run out really fast because Wonder Woman was the only female superhero. So you had to haul ass onto that playground because if you couldn't get Wonder Woman, you couldn't play. So, you know, I, I Wonder Woman has a real place in my heart. She's, she's the
0: best. Uh, Eliza, are you ready to jump into... Our first news story of the day.
1: I am. Absolutely.
0: All right. Our first story is from The Guardian. A female James Bond never confirms executive producer. 007 executive producer Barbara Bercali has made one thing clear about the character of James Bond, his manhood. She states, Bond is male. He's a male character. He has written as a male. And I think he'll probably stay as a male. And that's fine. We don't have to turn male characters into women. Let's create more female characters and make the story fit those female characters." Bercoli 58 heads Eon Productions and signs off on every key 007 hire and fire. Such leverage makes her perhaps the most powerful female producer the film industry has ever seen. It also makes her fiercely protective of the family business. Her father, Albert Bacali, is noted as the producer for many early Bond films. She does concede that Bond cannot be considered a feminist property, mostly referring to how early Bond films are written in the 50s, but points to the recent Daniel Craig franchise as an example of how the films have been transforming with the times. Bond 25, now titled No Time to Die, was the first project Bukali has worked on in years in which a male director, Carrie Fukunaga, helmed the project. Her last three projects have all championed female stories and have been directed by women. One of those projects, Nancy, was directed by Christina Cho, and had a crew that consisted of 80% female and 50% people of color. Crews in Hollywood tend to be mostly 90% men. Andrea Risenborough, who stars and co-produced Nancy, shared her experience on the miniseries Waco about the Waco siege in 1993 on being a woman on set. I was playing someone older than myself, so I asked them to make me look worse. I wanted to look tired and drawn at the end of of my tether, so I was invisible when I walked onto that set. It was a big shock. And it was all men. I said to the first assistant director, do you have any women on set? He said, you don't like to hear this, but it's a tough industry." Risenborough, who has frequently worked on Harvey Weinstein Produce Project, his producer credit for Waco has since been removed, is still coming to terms with the downfall. She states, You can't quite believe how much you're put up with, and how much you've not followed your instincts on a very basic level, and it was collective. The people I admired also weren't speaking up. It was a very confusing, horrible situation. She continues, As a woman, I've often had a sort of primal fear on set. You're surrounded by 19 men and you get this feeling inside. I might be overpowered. It's an old, animalistic, very natural thing. And I had somewhat tired of being in rooms like that. You're trying to go through something very vulnerable. You might be reenacting sexual abuse and you're surrounded by guys on a bedroom set. The whole thing can be re-traumatizing. Berkali, who continues to champion female, who continues to champion female filmmakers, has been a leading voice in providing the Time's Up movement with funded research into gender equality, which has helped inform their statements and help spread fact-based opinions. Yet, even in those moments, she still acknowledges how much power for change is in her hands. So, Eliza, you've been a part of the acting world since the age of 11. How does or can the space, the feeling of a room shift based on the demographic present?
1: Radically. I mean, (laughs) I always tell women, and I'll, I'll say this to you, if you want to understand how it feels, I would ask you to imagine flipping the script. So imagine that you walk into a room and you're on set and you're the only man or one of two men. And you have to, you're wearing, you're scantily clad and you're standing supportively behind some man, let's say in an action flick or something like that. And the DP is a woman. So that person is zooming in on you. The director is a woman. Everybody has that perspective. Think about how, would you feel completely comfortable expressing your feelings from your perspective as a man. I think that you might feel a little careful even with all the male privilege that you have. And so I think that women, when they, uh, when we walk on set and we are in a predominantly male-dominated industry, it definitely makes it less comfortable. Absolutely.
0: Well, yeah, I imagine that the shift in the power dynamic makes people very uncomfortable and kind of you lose that strength in your vulnerability because it's like, well... Like as, you know, this actress says, it's like when you're surrounded by 19 men, just that animalistic instinct of if something goes wrong, I'm in a bad situation here.
1: Yeah. And I don't even know, perhaps it's animalistic or perhaps it's training. So I I hesitate when people say animalistic because I think we're sort of, we're trained in society to do different behaviors. And I think if you start saying words like animalistic, then you also have to attribute that to men. And you have to say that men naturally... Are more violent statistically. Men are more violent, but I don't think men are naturally more violent. So I, I, so I, if you're going to apply that to women, you then have to apply it to men, which means that everybody is sort of not behaving that well some of the time, <laughs> or some of our in. And I don't even mean behaving well in, in terms of oh, I'm behaving badly. I mean behaving well in in terms of as a woman. Sometimes I develop compensatory strategies that work against my best interest. And so there are all different ways that we don't behave optimally because of the influence of sexism. And I, I really believe it hurts everybody. I don't think it just hurts women at all.
0: Yeah. So taking the fact that we're not these animalistic creatures, it's more of a humanity type, um, if I'm understanding kind of what you said, we can't put all of those characteristics on one sex, we'd have to put them on both sexes. And taking that concept of understanding why might a woman be fearful around 19 men, whereas a man might not have that same feeling around 19 women and kind of expand that concept a bit more, if that makes sense whatsoever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, one of the things in my book actually is about how we need to, women should have the right to feel safe in any space. And we don't always feel safe in spaces. Here's an example My daughter's generation says that when they go to bars, they put their hands over their drinks because they're afraid someone's, um, you know, I I can't even imagine that because that never happened when I was younger, but all kinds of other things happened. But it's not as if they're doing that in a vacuum from some animalistic instinct. They're doing that because there is evidence that that happens or they know people who that's happened to. You know, we are a product of our experiences, really. So I think you have to be really careful about attributing different gender-specific characteristics to biology. I think you have to be really careful about that. A, men statistically are more violent. Let's just use that also as an example. Does that mean that men are born more violent? I don't think so. Women statistically, I have found, have some compensatory strategies that they use to survive in the world because if they are straightforward, for example, they're going to get pushback with their communication. So women tend to do more passive aggressive behaviors because they've learned that that is a safer way to get what they want in certain situations. Is that because women are born more passive aggressive? No, it's because they get pushback for being straightforward. And so they're finding workarounds. And there are characteristics that both sexes have that are really wonderful that I also don't think are innate. So I think that there are things that men do that, for example, men seem to know what they're worth more. If, if a man is asked, how much do you think I should do for this project, for example, they will usually ask a reasonable amount, whereas women will undersell themselves. Women tend to be more empathetic. I, I don't think that that is because women are born more em- empathetic. I think it's because women are expected to be more empathetic from a young age. Or if you want to use just research, and I won't go on and on about this, but if you want to use some really interesting research, you know, there's all of this research about interruption and how women are interrupted more than men, and they are interrupted by men. You could say, using that animalistic argument, okay, so men are just inherently rude, and they interrupt all the time, which I don't think is true. But actually, they've done research on this, which is that women, little girls, are taught to not interrupt. So when a little girl interrupts, they say, don't interrupt, honey. When a little boy interrupts, they're not taught to stop interrupting. So it's not that little boys are taught to interrupt. They're just not checked when they do it which means when you get a man and a woman together, the boy interrupts and the girl shuts up. And that's not because of any inherent thing. That's because of training. And And I think when we think of it as training, A, it doesn't vilify any gender, which is really important. And B, it shows us that we can do things differently, that we have a chance to do things differently, because if it's training you can untrain the world, you know, in the in the more negative things. Uh, I don't think untrained the word, but you know, we're gonna go for it.
0: No, that's interesting that you brought it up because like to let you know, my background is in animal behavior.
1: Fascinating. No way. So a
0: lot of like how a lot of how I see like behavior in humans is based on very animalistic things, but I've also through the years and working with people and working in like the marketing and advertising field is how is that changing based on behavior? You you know, you have that story, like you talk a little bit about what you sent me about the, the childhood with uh, the Isaiah boy and him hitting you and then his mom being like oh that's how he just is showing how he likes you that's why he's doing it so this isaiah boy is growing up and i would imagine this is not an isolated incident and he's growing up and as a man he becomes more violent than what you would say a normal person would be because it's surrounded by this culture so at least for me like i've I base a lot of how I see interaction and people's behavior on the animal idea of everyone needs to eat, everyone needs to sleep and everyone needs to procreate. But then because humans have advanced intelligence and we can speak and we can communicate and we're influenced by the culture around us, kind of building the behavior from that.
1: Yeah, I think that we're taught all kinds of messages. And when I tell that story about Isaiah, all of my friends have an Isaiah story, all of them. I remember when I was with this teacher, you know, and I ran to the teacher because somebody had spit on me and the teacher said, oh, he just likes you. We are teaching our girls that you should never be hit on or spit unless it's with a man who likes you. And we're teaching our boys that it's okay to hit only if you really like the person. Which is insane.
0: Well, yeah. And then you create like these super toxic relationships where abuse is very prevalent because they both think this is part of a relationship.
1: Right. And it's okay. And not everyone, of course, is going to go out and do that. But if there's any trauma, you know, we're going to act out our trauma differently. So a girl is going to be more you know, likely if you're acting out your trauma and she's been given that message to be on the receiving end and a boy will be more likely to act out his trauma with violence. But I have to wonder if we weren't taught these messages over and over, if that would always be the outcome.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. And kind of moving back to the basis of this story. So in a previous episode with Cecil Harris, we talked about impactful change coming from those involved behind the scenes. Specifically in that episode, we mentioned umpires, tennis directors, etc. In the case of the entertainment industry... How do women continue to create a safe and respectful space behind the camera? You know, producers, directors, really all the way down to PAs and assistants.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I actually have kind of a a different take on it. You know, in the film industry, women account for 51% of all movie goers. But on the top 100 grossing films in 2019, 12% of the directors were women. 12%. Catherine Bigelow is the only woman to ever win an Academy Award for Best Director. And only five women have ever been nominated. Of the 500 films in 2019, movies with one female director uh, employed more women writers, editors, cinematographers, composers, you know, than films with exclusively men. That's according to the Center for uh, Study of Women in Television and Film. So, you know, and in these top top films, that 100 grossing films, 12% of the women are directors. Twenty women are twenty percent writers, two percent DPs or cinematographers, twenty-six percent producers, nineteen percent executive producers, and twenty-three percent editors. I think the question of how can women uh, create a safer space is, is actually not the right question to ask. I think the question is, because women are creating a safer space. I mean, there's there's <laughs> every bit of evidence shows that when you have a more even distribution of genders in a workspace that women are treated better. I mean, that's just a fat, And we, we get less sexual harassment, all of those things. But the thing is not that. It's really the onus is upon the men to hire more women. And and the way that I sort of describe this in terms of a safe space is imagine that you're walking down the street as a woman, right? And I, oh, this happens to me all the time with clients. I'll give you an example. Um, I've had universities. I work with a lot of universities. And I've had universities say, oh, you know, the women are really having a hard time in this department. And when I end up talking to them, they're receiving tons of sexism from their from their boss. I teach them how to navigate that sexism. But really, their boss should stop being sexist. If you think about a woman you love, your sister, your daughter, your mother, and she's walking down the street and people are whistling at her, is your first instinct to go up to her and say, you know, you really should... Be a little more careful so people don't whistle at you. Or do you want to go punch those guys in the face and say, Stop whistling at my mom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not the woman's responsibility to make it a safe space for herself. It's the people who are perpetuating the unsafe space who need to stop the behaviors.
0: I think it's the most stupidest defense when, you know, there's a sexual assault and the first thing the defense lawyer says is, Well, what were you wearing? to kind of break down the character. I think it's a ridiculous way of breaking down a woman's character who's been assaulted, because why does it matter? Like we have this idea that if a woman, you know, as we'll talk about more in the third story as well, but as if a woman dress is provocatively, then she creates the victimness of an assault. To kind of to your point, it's not about a woman dressing more modestly; it's about teaching the um, the man or whoever does the assault that it's not okay to have those feelings based on how someone dresses. Well, you
1: can have as many feelings as you want. You just can't act on them.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, look, I see attractive men walking down the street all the time. I, you know, And if I were not in my house and I was seeing some hot guy on the street, I have every right to think, wow, that's a very hot man walking down the street. But do I whistle at that man? No, because that would be inappropriate. So I think we need to differentiate that it's really, there's nothing wrong with any feeling you have. People, I think that's where our animalistic nature does come in. Sometimes we have feelings, you know, and that's fine. But the thing that makes us human is that we go to our brain and we say, hey brain, maybe I shouldn't whistle at that person because that's just not cool. And I think that's yeah, you know, that's that's the rub, as they say in Shakespeare.
0: Well, yeah, I'm glad you kind of clarified that. And I think something that the Me Too movement, you talk about the Me Too movement more so, I think it was like not being a destination, but the launching pad is, you know, the Me Too movement kind of made people, when they have those thoughts of, I'm going to catcall this woman, made them second guess, which I think is a positive move forward. But, you know, we have to continue moving forward. It can't just say, all right, we told those men, Me Too, time is up, now we're done. It's still, you know, if we want to continue to force, or not force, but put men into a position where they have to start making these safe spaces for women and start hiring more women directors and producers and editors and writers and all these things, it's saying we have to continue to move this conversation forward. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And I think the way you do that is to make sure that you are working to create spaces where women are in positions of power. Um, And I know in that article you read, it talked about uh, this woman being In a position of power and actually not then deciding to flip the script. Um, And I I thought it was interesting that she said, double seven is about his manhood. I don't even know what that means. But anyway, but, but, um, and then we're going to fit the female characters to a superhero. So I don't know what, I, I really truly almost didn't get what she was saying. I think I do. I think that the important thing about that is that there is a history of women who have derived their power from men Following male constructs and following male traditions. And this is a woman, and and more power to her. She sounds really cool, but in many ways, to be in that position, she's obviously a badass. But at the same time, her father created the rules of that game, her father created the rules of 007, and she is abiding by those rules. And I think that that's why it's so important to tell different and new stories with new ideas that come from women creators. Um, because it makes it just makes such a huge, huge difference. I mean, I was doing some research about this. And in the broadcast network season in 2018, 2019, 98% of the programs had no women directors, no women directors of photography, I'm sorry, no 98% of the programs had no women directors of photography, 79 had no women directors, 77 had no editors, and 77 had no creators. But of the shows where they did have women who were creators, the level, the number, you know, just the women being the creators of the show bumped all of those numbers up. In fact, the programs with one woman creator, they only needed one, then suddenly were 49% of the characters on the show. Whereas normally we are... Woefully represent, unrepresented, just in the characters. I mean, just wildly un, underrepresented. So I think that just getting women into those positions is absolutely, absolutely critical.
0: Well, yeah, as like we kind of talked about in that, the first question is like, once you start shifting that demographic, it's a totally different energy to that project, and you're going to attract more people. So if like, yeah, there's a woman helming a project. She's going to attract more women because they're like, you know, what? this is a safe space that I can be my creative self and not have to feel undermined by, you know, what a man may want me to do. I think you talk about even how kind of women are very um, like quiet speaking up in the workplace, whereas a man can feel I think you mentioned him, a man feeling like big and full where a woman kind of feels a little more smaller When it comes to those, I think it was something about how if a man asks somebody for help, he's being a good leader and delegating his work. Where if a woman asks someone for help, she needs help and she's struggling. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that women do feel a pressure to be more than perfect, especially in fields that are dominated by men. And so that fear can actually result in women not delegating enough because they don't want to appear as if they can't do everything. Whereas men are better historically at just saying, oh, yeah, you do this, you do this, you do this, because there's not that feeling of, of, man, I could lose my job. I can't believe I'm in this position. I'm the first woman in this position. So I think it does result sometimes in imposter syndrome with women or other things that result in them having a harder time being efficient because they want to show that they can do everything. I actually just was talking to a woman politician who I'm advising, Anna Kellis, who is running for a state assembly here in New York. And she said, people will call you and know it all if you act like you know too much. And yet, at the same time, you need to know it all. <laughs> and I thought that was such a perfect little encapsulation of what women struggle with. And Anna, if I misquoted you exactly on that, I apologize.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We yeah, like what one of the, the bigger things I liked about kind of the work you sent me was as a man, I can be confident and nobody really bats an eye. But and this will also kind of tie into our third story. But if a woman is confident, she's kind of seen as like, oh, she's kind of high maintenance and, you know, she's kind of high strung and all those things. So it's interesting how that dynamic, especially at such a professional level, is still Mm -hmm. represented
1: oh absolutely absolutely it's you know it's alive and well (laughs) just look at the latest election
0: (laughs) uh and then eliza to kind of wrap up the story specifically for um entertainment and media why does equal representation matter
1: we all right this is a really important question society is shaped by the stories that we tell and if you have one perspective represented the stories you're going to tell are from that one perspective. And then that perspective makes the rules. If you think about back in the day, leave it to Beaver, or any of the old shows or movies, the roles that women played taught us the roles we could play. There was only one Wonder Woman on the playground, as we said earlier in that conversation. So first of all, it's important for women to be in positions of power because we need to tell our stories because our stories are our power. We don't uh, someone I interviewed recently for my Women Amplified series said, men carry the swords and women carry babies in baskets. And the people with the swords tell our stories because they are they are the victors in history. But there are all kinds of stories going on at the same time that, may, that we are not telling. And both of those stories need to be told. And until we have more women telling our stories, we are not going to be as empowered. And the best example I can give of that is the Me Too movement the Me Too movement revolution was a revolution of stories. We changed an entire cultural expectation about how women should be treated. Women started telling their stories. That's how powerful our stories can be. And as long as you have one demographic telling our stories, or telling their stories, or that, or men, let's just be blunt about it. As long as you have men telling the stories about men, or men telling stories about women from a male perspective, You're never really going to understand the experience of half the population. And that has radical implications on who has power, how decisions are made. It even has implications on what businesses rise to the top. That's the first thing is we need to tell our stories. And until we are in a position of power, at least 50-50, 50% 50 of the world's stories are not told And that diminishes women. And by extension, if one part of our society is diminished, we're all diminished. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to have women in positions of power because women deserve to be safe in their workspaces. And as we know from everything in Me Too, Hollywood is traditionally, especially because it's so focused on your appearance, Hollywood is really an ecosystem that is very prone to women feeling unsafe. And so the more women we can get into positions of power, the better. And I'm just going to end. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. This is so important. I've I'm got to end with the final story. So I have been going to the, Par- the Park School of Communication. I live in Ithaca, New York. And every year, I go to the Park School and I give a talk to the directors, the young student directors. And I tell them, how do you communicate with actors? That's the whole talk maybe 20, 15 years ago, when I would go in there, it would be all young white men, all young white men. And then I would go see their senior thesis day. And it would be all the stories of young white men. I didn't see myself in any of those stories. Now I go in there and I'd say it's 75% white men. And when I go to see the senior theses, 25% of those stories are people of color and white women. They're telling different stories. That's the beginning of where change happens. Because the more we tell our stories, also, the more we tell our stories, the more we can understand each other and understanding lies at the very foundation of change.
0: I think No, I think that was a be- beautiful way, a beautiful ramble, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, kind of just a, my final thoughts on that. Yeah, it is important that Specifically, young girls have those role models. Speaking to superheroes, now we have so many female led superheroes, and we're now finally getting more female led superhero movies. But it's awesome that, you know, a young girl can now go, in your case, go to the playground and instead of just having to get there first to get Wonder Woman. Now there's all these different types of superheroes that she can choose from. And I think that creates a more positive space for them to really grow and expand and share their stories, as you say. How
1: can you be a superhero if you have no role model? If you have a, you know, how can you do that? If the little boys go out and there's so many different ways they can be a superhero. And now there are so many, a lot more ways for little girls to be superheroes as well.
0: I agree. I would like to welcome to the show Eliza Vancourt. Eliza is a speaker, teacher, and author who focuses on workplace communication and presentation, particularly the challenges faced by those in underrepresented groups and STEM. Her forthcoming book, A Women's Guide to Claiming Space, stands. Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard is set to be published by Barrett Kohler in the spring of 2021. Eliza, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh,
0: You're someone who travels and does a lot of speaking. Like how has that pivoted since quarantine began?
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. It's such a question. Um, Well, you know, I'm a gig worker. I, I make my living traveling and standing up in front of people packed together in spaces. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a great time for that. I Yeah, and I go all over the world. So I travel by airplane to get to where I'm going often. <laughs> um, it was pretty scary at first. I would say probably uh, 90% of my work was canceled within the first week of when things got really serious. Uh, and I kind of had a mini heart attack. but. Fortunately, I have very loyal clients. And they have all been... Whenever I work with an organization, usually I'm asked back every year. And so they've all been working to find creative ways to work with me. And I'm starting to get online gigs. But I'll tell you, for a while, I was really... uh, It was scary because I had absolutely no income. Now my income is going to start happening probably in June or July. But it's tight right now. It's and I'm in a much better position than a lot of other gig workers. It's it's really scary if you make your living in front of human beings talking while they are smushed together, rubbing elbows. It's it's time for some major innovation. But that's what I did. I mean, now I have all of these online services, online coaching, and um, I'm giving speeches online. I'm running seminars online. But uh, I had to innovate real fast. I'll tell you that much. But I, I do want to say, just to be really fair about this, that I have friends who are who have over a dozen people who've died who live in the Bronx, and so what I'm dealing with is nothing. Uh, one of my closest friends lives in the Bronx, and uh, she's we are very fortunate if we are safe and we are healthy at this point.
0: Yeah, well, listeners, if you'd like to connect and be more informed about Eliza, you can do so by heading to www.elizavancourt.com. Once again, that's www.elizavancourt.com, where you can find more links to her work, including her new YouTube series, Women Amplified, which you just kind of mentioned with your friend Liz, I believe. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and available under this episode on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Com. And moving forward, water cooler talk. Water cooler talk is on a mission to help give back to a different parts of the community, and kind of give back to those who have helped build us to where we are today. So, in each episode, the guests will bring. I'm asking guests to bring with them a charity of their choosing to represent. Water Cooler Talk will give a donation in their name, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. Today, I've brought with you Girl Up. Do you mind speaking to what they do and how they are being a service to the community on either a domestic or a global stage?
1: Absolutely. So Girl Up was actually founded... Uh, by the UN Foundation in 2010, and it was founded to help support UN agencies that focus on adolescent girls. And they, as they say, in, on their website, they are quote inspiring a generation of girls to be a force for gender equality and social change. And they have leadership development programs which have impacted thousands and thousands of girls in clubs. They're in 120 countries and all of the US uh, and all 50 of the US states, according to. Uh, their website. And I actually gave a talk with them a couple of years ago for one of their conferences. I was so impressed with the young women there and what they pulled together. It was just so inspiring. So I thought, what better place to give a little money if possible than to an organization that's trying to inspire a generation of girls.
0: Awesome. I appreciate that. All right. Are you ready to jump into our second news story of this episode.
1: I am ready.
0: All right. This is listeners. This is a bit of an older story. This is from June 13th, 2014, but the conversation still applies to today. This is from The Atlantic Politics. Running for president is hurting Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. The more obvious Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign becomes, the less people like her. At the time of this article being published, Clinton had an approval rating of 52% down from 56% she had three months prior in March. And the 70% she had in December 2012, when her campaign was starting to discuss the what if of her running for president. In September of 2011, Ellen Talsher, uh, Clinton's then undersecretary of state, warned Clinton that her approval ratings would drop if America thought she was re entering politics. Uh, Talsher did pass away in April of 2019. During this time, Clinton was beginning a tour for her memoir, Hard Choices, and it had opened her up to the sort of intense scrutiny that drops approval ratings, particularly concerning her time in President Obama's cabinet and what that meant for her presidential ambitions. Controversies mentioned including her handling of of American POW Bo Bergdahl for five Taliban members, Benghazi, and her stance on same-sex marriage. But despite the increased criticism, Clinton is still the frontrunner. Her popularity is especially high among women who favor her at nearly a 2-to-1 ratio. If the election were to be held today, which would be June 13th, 2014, she'd probably win the popular vote over likely Republican candidates like Governor Chris Christie, Senators Rand Paul, and Marco Rubio. Meanwhile, no current Democrat has risen up to challenge Clinton for the nomination. Now, obviously six years in the future, we know Bernie Sanders became the Democratic challenger to Clinton's eventual Democratic nomination for president, and she would later lose to Donald Trump during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. 304 to 227 in the electoral college, but did receive 2.1 percent more of the popular vote. So you've spent some time um, in politics. You were a intern for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. You actually hold a degree in political science. Uh, so I would say you have a better understanding than most of the ins and outs of politics uh, than you know most people would. Do you believe women in politics receive harsher treatment than their male counterparts? And if so, why do you believe that separation exists and how does it change?
1: Oh, I'm so happy you asked me this question because I find this fascinating. I hope I don't bore people right now because I I just think this is the coolest stuff. So, okay, yeah, unequivocally, yes. No question. And I think there's a pretty there's several reasons for that, but I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to stay in my wheelhouse as it intersects with communication. So there's all kinds of research that's been done. That in order for a man to be received as a leader, he needs to be something called agentic in the literature, which is basically strong and authoritative. For a woman to be received as a good leader, she needs to be strong. She needs to be agentic and sensitive. She needs to go right in that squishy middle. If you go too far into agentic, you're a bitch. If you go too far into sensitive, you're crazy, hysterical, or wimpy. So women have to get right in that little sweet spot. And that's a lot harder to pull off. Clinton is of the generation where the second wave feminist generation which basically in the 80s we were taught to emulate men you know wear big shoulder pads and go out and act like a dude and then you're going to get stuff and the research now shows that does not work at all people get something if you are if you are perceived as too agentic people get something called gender incongruity reactions and they basically, they, what that basically means is they feel really uncomfortable. They have a very visceral negative reaction. They don't know why. They don't say, golly, I think I'm having a gender incongruity reaction. Uh, <laughs> but they just, they feel really negative. And then they make up a story as to why they feel negative, And they make up a narrative in their head. So for example, people would say Hillary Clinton was shrill. Shrill is a high-pitched sound. You cannot say that Hillary Clinton was ever shrill. Um, but that's a story we make up with the gender incongruity. Now, Hillary Clinton is definitely one of those second wave feminists. I, I would watch the debates and, and think to myself, oh, I wish I could show her this wonderful research out of Stanford, which teaches you how to do that delicate balancing act. Because to me, I could just feel America having a gender incongruity reaction to her. So it's very hard as a woman to pull off being, a, being received as a politician, on top of which, there's a million other different ways that women encounter sexism as politicians and it just makes it so that you're not just running for office as a person you're running for office while navigating sexism and that just is a little bit more difficult
0: i that's i mean as you're explaining that that's like mind blowing because like i was someone who i just didn't connect with hillary clinton and now after you explained that i was like oh that kind of makes sense to where I think how I felt about her. Cause I couldn't like exactly put my just finger on it, but I was just like, she just seems unlikable to me. And it has nothing to do with, you know, her gender or what she believes in. It was just something that I was like, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about her that I can't get behind.
1: And that's you just said it perfectly. People would say, I don't know. I just have a feeling. I don't know. And it's like, it's gender and congruity. But the amazing thing is like whenever people are having trouble understanding sexism uh, I, or racism or any kind of ism, ageism, classism, I tell them flip the script, flip the script in your head. Imagine if Hillary Clinton were moving her body in space like Bernie Sanders. Imagine that she was hunched over, pointing her finger at people going, you're wrong. You know. <laughs> People would think she'd lost her damn mind. I mean, she wouldn't have gotten anywhere if she did an eighth of the, quote, aggressive, because it would be considered aggressive on her body language. Forget it. Or imagine if she was standing behind Trump and she was six feet tall and he was five feet tall. And looming over her, de- looming over Trump in a debate. You know, she was a six foot tall woman. Imagine, uh, what what is the name of that character from uh, uh, Game of Thrones? The big. Oh,
0: Gwendolyn Christie. Uh, I don't know what character she plays. Yeah,
1: Gwendolyn Christie. Imagine she's, she's standing over Trump, leaning over him as he's talking. People would lose their damn
0: minds. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's literally the flip. There's that picture of Trump standing behind Hillary at the town hall meeting. It's like. Well, what would the thoughts have been if that was a flipped
1: photo? They would say that she was an aggressive bitch, is what they would say. <laughs> I mean, that's just what would happen. Hillary Clinton does not... She's she's an introvert. And she's not one to share her feelings. Just, you know, ex- her husband's very extroverted. She's very introverted. She's very careful with her feelings. And on top of which, she knows that she, if she shows any feelings... She's going to be labeled as as bananas. So she has to be so measured and careful. And so it feels like she's hiding something. She kind of is. She she can't just say whatever the hell she wants. I mean, there's, a, there's actually a chapter in my book called The Privilege of Sharing Your Feelings. I will tell you, my male friends, the way that they feel comfortable just saying when they're unhappy compared to women who qualify 800 times before they say they're unhappy is somewhat astounding. So yeah, no, it's very hard to be a female, a woman and be a politician. It's, it's, um, I think it is changing generationally. I've hoped for my daughter's generation, but, and I think AOC actually is a great example of somebody who's kind of learning, learning that balance to a certain extent. And young people love her because they have they have more fluid gender expectations. So they're not having those gender incongruity reactions quite as much.
0: What's well, interesting that you brought up AOC, because like specifically from that question, I remember when uh, a bunch of Republican senators got on her case for playing Animal Crossing. And, you know, I guarantee tons of other governors and, you know, House of Representatives, like they play video games, but for some reason they are like, We need to focus on her. And I even just watched Michelle Obama's becoming documentary on Netflix. She talks about how, you know, women, especially in politics, tend to receive a lot more attention to their appearance, their personality and their family than a male candidate would ever. You know, she talked about um, Michelle talked about how, you know, she actually had to have a stylist for every single dress she wore for every single appearance and you look at Obama, the only thing people remember about Obama's appearance was that one time he wore a tan suit.
1: Right. And he's also a black man, because I can tell you that if Trump wore a tan suit, uh, no one would care. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think, an indicative of the fact that also he could not misstep either because he is a black man. And so he was going to get a lot more pushback for any tiny misstep, uh, a lot more push- pushback than Trump. I mean, again, flip the script. Imagine Obama saying that he grabbed women by their genitals. Would he have been elected? I'm going to go with a big fat no. Yeah,
0: that's a very good point. It's like, yeah, there's almost this double standard, especially in politics, especially in the entertainment industry, as we talked about, you know, before that. Men have a longer, I don't, I don't even know if this will make sense, but men have a longer leash on what they're able to do. And women are kind of on the short leash. where if I do this or if I say this, my whole political career could be ended. You know, one of my least favorite senators of all time, Roy Moore, he still got elected even after all these things came out about him being a, you know predator to young women. And it's just like, as you say, if you flip that script, would that still happen if it was a female doing to that to you know <laughs> no. a young boy
1: <laughs> no i mean I, yeah i mean whatever it's so helpful flipping the script it really is um because whenever you do flip the script you suddenly say oh yeah no and i think yeah, some of this is so normalized for us that we just kind of take it as okay and it's only when you flip it that you say but is that okay? Is it really? And then you realize maybe not. Would I want that to happen to my daughter or my sister or my mother?
0: I'm not gonna say no. Well, and then kind of more to um, Hillary Clinton's, specifically her campaign for the twenty sixteen. Do you believe emphasizing being a woman can create a successful campaign strategy? And does the well does the, like, does the campaign playbook change when a woman is involved in a race?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it completely changes. And, you know, you don't need to emphasize being a woman because everybody's going to look at you and say, you're a woman and you're standing next to a lot of guys. Everybody sees it. That's why you get so much sexism. But I do think it's important to bring up the issues that are important to you. And if you are a woman, that will be coming from your perspective. And so many of those issues will be a little bit different than some of the men that are running simply because you've had a different life. And that's why we need both uh, genders, all genders represented uh, in the halls of power. Because if we have one gender represented, we're going to work on certain issues. And if we have all genders represented, then all of us are going to get the benefit of representation. And that's really the fair thing, of course. And I, I truly believe that when you raise up Only one group, everyone suffers. But when we all rise together, we rise farther.
0: Well, yeah, I like the point about, you know, at the lower levels, if a woman's running for maybe mayor, she's going to have more, you know, health initiated platforms because that's just the culture that she grew up in. As we talked about, you know, you're young friend Isaiah in the beginning of this episode, you know, your culture is basing things on what your future adult self fights for. And if you're like sexually active and you want to support, you know, Planned Parenthood, there's a a high chance when you do get into politics, you're going to want to support those things over, say, tax breaks for homeowners or something like that. No, no,
1: I think that's great. And actually what you just said actually revealed exactly why we need women's perspectives, because most men associate Planned Parenthood with sexual activity, whereas actually Planned Parenthood, that is not all that they do. In fact, a large portion of what they do is OBGYN health and just, you know, pap smears (laughs) and things that save women's lives and breast exams. And so we associate, and so that's a great example of, you know, you hear these politicians saying close Planned Parenthood. A lot of women are going to lose access to affordable health care. And so that right there is an example of why we need to have both perspectives represented, because that's why a woman's going to fight for for, uh, Planned Parenthood more, because she knows the service that they're doing for women to the community that goes well beyond birth control or the abortion debate
0: no i'm glad you brought that up i was definitely wrong in that description of it and i'm glad you kind of informed me on how to move forward on that because that is like subconsciously that's just what pops into the head and if we're able to get more of that equal representation you're able to get a more equal idea of what's needed from these different platforms
1: yeah and i gotta just like kind of jump in and say i think it's really important when we talk about gender issues. And, um, this is me being a little, I mean, I'm a communication person. So of course I'm into semantics, but using the word wrong. Yeah. I guess you could say technically you're wrong, but from your experience, that's probably, you're probably right. Right. You probably have experienced Planned Parenthood as like, oh, my girlfriend, mm-hmm. went. To Planned I mean, I don't know if you did, but <laughs> my girlfriend <laughs> went to Planned Parenthood. Um, and if I'm talking about something with the male experience, you know, I'm talking from the female perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I might not get a huge chunk of it because I haven't lived it. When I think of wrong, I think of sort of bad. That's why I think, again, we need to have all these perspectives represented because it's not that it's men have a bad perspective. It's that we don't want it to be the only perspective represented or the primary perspective represented. We want that perspective, of course, though but we just want the other one as well.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, a good point. It's like, at least for me and you know, when I eventually have kids, like I want to be able to have a very world view when, you know, we're talking about these issues. And even in this third story, like I had to call a friend and kind of get her ideas on what is your perspective on this? Because I think that's one of the most important things that at the end of the day, I can only speak from the male perspective. You know, I can't sit here and tell you what you should think as a woman, I can only speak to what I know as a man.
1: Yeah. And I think what you did is the step we all need to do, which is talk to somebody who has the experience you don't. When I'm trying to learn about race, I'm not going to go to a white person and ask them about race. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go to my friends of color and say, hey, I'm not black. And I have this question because I don't understand this thing because I haven't lived it. And there's no shame in that. In fact, that's what good allies do. Well,
0: And then just... Continuing on to the future of politics, how do we create this future of equality and equal representation now this time in politics, while still respecting the idea that you know women are deserving of the seat at the table and making up for lost time? You talk about um, the scarcity myth uh, in some of that work you sent me. So how do we continue to create this future of equality?
1: That's a tough question. I, I think the only way to do it is with an intersectional approach. And what I mean by that is often in the feminist movement, it has been associated with white women. And as long as you only have white women working to help white women rise, we're not going to have unity. And without unity, we don't have strength. So I think that women need white women have more power, generally, than women of color. I think white women need to start engaging with issues of race. And for, that's one of the first things we need to do. We need to understand that when you're talking about women, you're not just talking about white women. You're talking about all women. Because if we can unite, we will be so much stronger because we are 50% of the population. Uh, But we're not, white women are not 50% of the population. So, I think that's the first thing is taking an intersectional approach, which means attacking isms on every level. That means classism, racism, ableism, all of the isms. Uh, I think those are, that's the first step. And then beyond that, I think we need to start educating people about these isms and un- educating people about how they impact our emotional life and how they impact the choices that we make. And, and finally, on a, just on a really basic level, I think people just need to look at fa- general fairness and say to themselves, Is it, are we going to live in a more fair world if a, an entire part of the population does not have access? to the same amount of power as a different group. And if you think that's possible, then please show me that world because I would love to see it, but I don't think it's possible. So I think the only way we're gonna live in a fair and just world is if all of us get access. And the only way all of us are gonna get access is if people start actually thinking, I am going to support women candidates. I am going to promote women candidates. I am going to work for women candidates. And when I hear sexism, I am going to interrupt it. So if I hear someone say Hillary Clinton is shrill, I'm going to say, well, actually, you know, that's not true. (laughs) That's a high voice. And I'm wondering why you think you don't like her tone of of voice, because listen to Bernie's. (laughs) (laughs) I love Bernie. I love Bernie, but he's not exactly the most, you know, soft-spoken guy ever. (laughs) Uh, And that's what we love about him. But, you know, that's not going to fly for a female politician. So I think we need to, as a culture get more women into the halls of power. And the way we do that really is by committing to making sure that we support women um, women who are running for office, just on a really basic level. We don't have to get too deep about why we don't do it. We just need to do it.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, speaking for 26 or 2020, we're in year 2020, I think it's women candidates. Um, I think there's like the most amount of women candidates on record running for a house seat this year. So there's like tons of opportunity for... That change to potentially happen if that's someone you believe in.
1: Right. And my my rule with voting is all things being equal, I'm gonna vote for the underrepresented group. So in the last cycle in my district, there were two candidates, Tracy Matrano, and Max Delapia. I did not think they were equal. So I endorsed Max because I thought he was a far better candidate. I would never endorse a candidate who is a woman just because she's a woman. I think that's a that's a real problem because then we're not getting the creme de la creme in there anyway, right? We don't we want the best people in there. But had Max and Tracy been equally viable candidates, I would have endorsed Tracy. But in my mind, you know, this was a there was absolutely no question that Max was a superior candidate. And so I, I endorsed him, and I'm very proud to have endorsed him. He's actually become one of my one of my closest friends, and I think he's an exceptional human being. But um, she ended up actually getting the nomination, and I think a lot of people did uh, vote for her partly because she's a woman, and I think that's that's a mistake. We want to vote, but all things being equal, absolutely every time vote for the underrepresented
0: group. Well, yeah. And it's something we talk about a lot on this show is educating yourself is such an important aspect of creating change. Like if you're underrepresented and you want change, you know, you have to find those people that are fighting for you. You have to even I think one of the biggest things that quarantine and just the past few years of trying to grow as a person is you also have to kind of understand the privilege. You know, the Minnesota stay at home order is ending on the 18th. So we're recording on the 15th here. I understand my privilege in that situation where I'm not going to be affected by that. But people who may not have the same social or the same economical safety that I have, they're going to be affected by these things opening back up and having to go back to work in these potentially unsafe situations. Not only educating yourself, but also understanding, you know, if you're in a spot of privilege, understanding that privilege and understanding how you can use that privilege to help create a more productive conversation.
1: And I think that's what it's all about, really, is hearing each other and listening to each other and believing each other. Because that's the first step. You know, that's one of the main ways that we're going to create change is by believing each other. Because I'll never live in your shoes, Adam, and you'll never live in mine. And the only way I'm going to understand your perspective is if I believe what you're telling me about your perspective. And I think that's that's where you start to understand your privilege is by listening to people who have stories different than your own. Mm -hmm.
0: Very true. I mean, I don't know if I'm wearing very ratty shoes. I don't know if you want to try them on. They're very broken and I've had them since freshman year of college. But uh, if you want to try them on.
1: I I, look at these (laughs) shoes. These are my favorite shoes. These are the shoes I'm wearing. So, yeah, Um, (laughs) I just got these great shoes. Um, I love them.
0: All right, Eliza, are you ready to jump into our final news story? Of the day.
1: I am, Adam. I'm pumped.
0: All right, this is from cypost.org, one of my more favorite websites. Women dress modestly to defend themselves against aggression from other women. New research from the Social Psychology and Personality Science Journal provides evidence that women strategically dampen signals of sexual permissiveness and desirability to avoid provoking intersexual aggression. In other words, the research suggests that women dress defensively by wearing less revealing outfits when encountering other women. Jamie Krems, an assistant professor of psychology at Oklahoma State, says, So much social psychology has focused on men's cognition and behavior, or has long assumed that male psychology is the default. But men and women can also face some distinct challenges, and this seems especially true when we consider how women navigate their same-sex social worlds. This project arose out of a desire to explore how women actively strategically navigate those unexplored worlds. The initial experiment with 79 females and 63 male participants found that people expected women to direct more veiled aggression, uh, such as acting bitchy, towards another woman when she was wearing a revealing outfit versus wearing a more modest outfit. Uh, The amount of skin showed determined if an outfit was revealing or modest in this experiment. The experiment was then conducted an additional three times with 584 women in total, in which those 584 women assessed what types of outfit women might wear to various types of social gatherings. The participants tended to choose more modest outfits when attending an all-female gathering compared to gatherings with both men and women. The tendency was exaggerated in women who rated themselves more physically attractive than their peers. Women who considered themselves attracted tended to dress less revealingly when meeting a prospective new female friend, but this was not the case when they were told they would be meeting an existing female friend. Women who considered themselves less attractive tended to dress more revealing when meeting a prospective new female friend than an existing friend. Krem states the findings indicate, Women are deeply rational and strategic. Women are aware of the threats posed by others and act in ways to avoid those threats. Here, for example, we show that women are aware that appearing and or dressing certain ways makes them more likely targets of other women's aggression, and that, in situations where this knowledge is salient, and for women most at risk of incurring aggression, women then choose to dress in ways that might help them avoid other women's slings and arrows. Of course, when it comes to how women decide to dress, avoiding same-sex aggression is just one factor among many. The researchers of the study also write, We would not argue that other women are always the sole intended audience for women's tutorial, their style of dress, cues, and or signals. And even when other women are the intended audience, we would not expect that women's tutorial choices are always calibrated, Only towards avoiding intersexual aggression. So one thing I do, um, I'll add later on in our corrections is like just who funded this research. Because I think when we talk about studies, I think that's very important to talk about who funded the research and why. But anyways, I just want to like jump into this conversation. I try to think of like a good uh, question to jump into it, but I just want to hear your thoughts.
1: <laughs> I hate that article so much. <laughs> I think it's so offensive and so shallow. I'm, say, I'm not saying you're shallow. I'm just, I just—I think it's a great article to pick because there's so much to unpack. Okay. Yeah. That's it, the most surface level analysis I've ever heard. I was so cringy when I read it. Well, the first thing is n- never in that article do they talk about the historic roots of how women get power. And historically, men get power through money and power and status, right? Their jobs. And women get power through how they look. That was historically how it went. So you would see, you know, that's what you still see. I mean, look at Trump. Do you think that if he were, uh, you know, I don't know, he was in a working class job, he would have snagged Melania? Because I'm <laughs> going to go with no. I don't think she would have looked at him, right? She was going for power. And he was going for her, you know, I, we don't know how smart or not smart she is, but I will say that her beauty certainly did not hurt. Women gain a lot of power from how they look. So that's the first thing. So what we're talking about here is power dynamics. Secondly, if you know that women are getting power from how they look, and they're talking in the article about how there's something in the article about how some women dress down right when they hang out with their friends is that right so like a woman who gets together i don't remember if that was
0: more attractive women would dress down when meeting new friends and they would dress up when meeting existing friends
1: right so you can be yourself among existing friends so if you want to dress up and look great you're not going to scare anybody you're not going to be stepping on toes when meeting new friends and if you're attractive you know you have more power already so in order to level that playing field you dress down so that you equalize yourself. So if you're the most beautiful woman in the room, people can feel intimidated if by your power. So what do you do? You lower yourself a little by dressing down a little so that the women who are less attractive, who are then dressed up, can feel like there's an even power dynamic because we still derive so much power in society from our looks. And so I think that's you know one of the flaws in that article, among among many, among many. <laughs>
0: Well, one thing that, you know, my friend who I talked to about, she mentioned, she was like, you know, make sure you mention this is like this article makes it seem like women can't be friends, but women can be women are friends. Women are friends all the time. But this the way kind of this is presented is, oh, if I'm an attractive woman, I can't be friends with you because I feel like your slings and arrows are going to come after me. So I think that's, you know, one of the important things is I feel like this paints the picture of there's this idea that women Or I think just society in general might even have this, you know, idea that women dress to impress men. But, you know, in this study, obviously, we're talking about how women compare to women. But I think that is such an outdated concept. You know, when we talk about pre-war times and war times and that times, the 60s, the 70s, 80s, the idea, the... The time of the housewife and I'll put quotations around that is you were dressing for your man because that's where you thought your power was.
1: I mean, it is what your power was. You didn't think it. It was. You got your goal is to be very, very pretty so you could snag in a, a guy who could provide for you. If you were a, a woman of a certain class, I mean working class women have always worked. But if you were of a woman who is a you know a middle class upper middle class woman, your goal was to look really pretty. So you could get a guy of a high status, which means somebody who could provide for you. And that has not changed completely radically because there is still, girls still do get their social power in many ways by boys liking them. And if you look, if you walk into any middle school cafeteria, you will see that the boys still hold a lot of the social power and the girls derive their social power from how appealing they are to the boys. And so the girl that all the boys likes tends to have a lot of social power. We are still deriving our power from men. That is why in that article when women get together and they there's that pretty girl, it can be kind of triggering because we all know that that pretty girl who's very well dressed is going to um have more social power and so we're trying to be friends and we're trying to get to know each other and we don't want to feel uneven so we dress down. It, and here's an example kind of a peripheral example of this. So years ago I was talking to a friend. We'll call him Bob. And I ran into Bob and his wife Jane. These are made up names um, at a play. And so I, I I was talking to Bob because Bob and I are very close. We're very good friends. We're colleagues. We're both in the arts. And I don't know Jane. I barely knew Jane. Jane, We were talking for a while, and Jane said something like, "God, I'm here." And I got really offended. And I thought, "Why is she being so weird?" Of course, I don't know Bob. Like, why? I I was trying to include her, but not really, because you know, I was saying hi to Bob because Bob's my friend. And if I had gone up to two women and I knew Jane and Mary. I wouldn't spend the whole time talking to Mary. I would talk to Jane because Jane's my friend, right? I might try to include Mary a little, but I wouldn't make Mary the center of the conversation. And I talked to a friend of mine who is really brilliant about these issues. And she said, didn't you ever learn the pretty girl rules? If you're an attractive woman and you go up to a couple and you know the man, you don't look at the man almost at all. You only address the woman and you talk to the woman the entire time. And if she pulls the man into the conversation, then." You start talking because if not, you will be seen as a threat because you are attractive. I don't know. My my, I'm going to blame my stepmother for this because she never taught me that. So uh, Beth, if you're listening, never taught me that rule. And she's a beautiful woman. She said no. Um, but, but I have found now that I get along much better with the spouses of men that I'm close with if I basically ignore the man and talk to the woman. And I started doing that. It was fascinating. And of course, it all goes down to power dynamics. And I think until we stop valuing women by the way that they look, then everything in that article is going to continue. The very foundation of that article is the idea that which they don't talk about, which is that we still derive our power from how we look. And that results in all kinds of dysfunctional dynamics between women and men. And between women and women, and we have is and and they've done tons of research on this. Men who are attractive definitely also get more stuff for being alive; they have pretty privilege, but not nearly to the extent that women do. Women it gives them a gigantic leg up, but sometimes, obviously, in certain situations, they need to diminish that so they don't don't appear threatening.
0: Well, this is probably going huge ego right here. But like, I know when I'm looking my best and, you know, I'm happy and I'm in a good spot in my life and I'm dressed well and my hair is done the right way and my beard's done the right way. And when I go out and I have a smile on my face, I can definitely notice that I get treated better.
1: Oh yeah. Pretty privilege is real. I mean, I know that I'm a, you know, it's funny. I didn't grow up thinking I was very attractive at all. But when I hit about thirty, I think I kind of hit my stride, <laughs> and, and so I, I feel like I was cheated out of a lot of years because I only got kind of the window <laughs> going down in here. But um, but you know, I, I, you know, I think that objectively I would probably be considered a you know a relatively attractive woman for my age, and I know I get privileged from it. I know I do. Men who are not attractive don't have the same difficulties rising up in their social circles or in their career as women who are not attractive. Women really need... Being attractive as a woman is more useful for women than for men. But that being said, of course, pretty privilege is real. And you will get stuff for being alive if you are a pretty person. And that is another thing you need to be aware of is are you rocking your privilege for good or are you rocking it for yourself? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm always rocking it for myself. You
1: gotta rock it. gotta rock it for both. It's really cool to it for yourself.
0: No, I'm kidding. But I think, I think I'm think i glad you brought that up because how I kind of see it and with the animal background I have and you talking about, you know, talking to a um, a couple's husband first before, you know, you're taught about the pretty rule. But I've seen that and you see that in animals and obviously humans are much more intelligent uh, animals. But it's like that competition for Survival, And I think deep down in our brains, we still have those neurons that are firing that are saying that, oh, I see her as a threat, so I'm going to like her less. And I think, you know, as we talked about, I think this, you know, study is pretty surface level. I think there's more you can kind of dive into to discuss these issues on a much more productive uh, level. But I definitely can understand, you know, based on what my background is with studying animals is how dressing differently can definitely change the dynamic of a relationship, whether that be with the same sex or another sex.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. But I think there's even more to kind of unpack there, which is there's another part where they talk about showing skin, right? Don't Mm -hmm. they talk about that? Yep. That's another whole layer, which I didn't even, you know, address, which is also learned which is, you know, women are either Madonnas or they're sluts. Slut shaming historically is a way that you can control women. There are many different ways to control women. You can label them as bitches, as feminists, as crazy. You can also label them as sluts. Women often participate and oppressed groups have been taught to participate in their own oppression. And so by slut shaming a woman who has on a little, who's showing her (laughs) decollage and showing her cleavage or whatever... When you are doing that, you're actually helping perpetuate a system that 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 oppresses you. And historically, the way you keep, the best way to keep a group oppressed is by having them participate in their own oppression. And that's really what that article is about on a very deep level. And if you look at the history of power and who wins in terms of who has the resources, uh, who lives longer, who gets better medical care. When you look at the when you look at those groups, what you're going to find is they are the group that they are above is infighting. So as long as you have people infighting, you are going to uh, at the bottom, the top position is solidified. And that is what they're sort of that that article is about in my mind. that
0: makes any sense. Definitely. Yeah, it's one of those things where I I saw the story, like, I'm glad you brought up the fact that what you sent me, you talked about how you used to like hide behind your hair growing Mm -hmm. up, like that was your safety net. And after reading the story, I was like, you know, what? this kind of makes sense to me, once again, from my perspective on using clothes as a way to obviously represent yourself. A lot of people dress to represent themselves and show who they are. I was thinking about this and it's almost as if I'm more attracted to a woman in lingerie than I would be a woman who was completely naked. And to me, as I was thinking about this, I was like, why, why do I have that thought? Why do I, you know, believe that if you're Nude whether you be a man, a female, whatever you identify with it's complete vulnerability right mm-hmm. you can 't hide behind anything you're just out there, but clothes allows you lingerie, especially from this example, allows you to dress in a way you feel much more confident mm. so I was thinking about it was like oh maybe to me i'm more attracted to the confidence than the actual aspect of what the body is representing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that was kind of like my thought process by reading through the story. I was like, you know what? I could understand how clothing can create this confidence, not only for the person wearing it, but also, Oh, this woman that, you know, we've gotten to a point where, we both agree to get into the sexual situation. And wow, she looks, I like the confidence that she has mm-hmm, by wearing mm-hmm. what she has.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we're all, I think that that's sort of a interesting question. And it's it's also what kind of confidence is it? And all of those different things. The way we dress is a costume. We're all putting on a costume. And it's a question of what costume do we want to wear? I mean, if I always tell people when I go to my talks, I really would love to show up in pajamas and slippers. Because I happen to love my slippers a lot, (laughs) but I'm not going to do that because they would think I was insane, right? I'm going to dress for the part. I'm not going to go to dinner, however, in the clothes that I wore to my seminar. My kids are going to say, "Mom, why are you wearing red lipstick? That's ridiculous, (laughs) right?" So we have different costumes we put on for different parts of our lives, and I think that's fine. I think the problem comes in a when we're judging each other for the costume that we happen to like. And B, when that costume is totally dependent on the approval of other people, rather than I happen to really like, I know when I wear certain outfits, when I go do my talks, I feel really good and I like it. And if there's somebody who doesn't like it, well, okay. You know, I feel good now. Um, can you take that to an extreme? Yeah. I would not show up in slippers even though I'd feel really good. So it's, it depends on the kind of good you want to feel. So I think there's definitely a balance there. I mean, it's really interesting as you say this. I'm going to I'm gonna shout out to someone but not say their name. So there is a male relative of mine in his 70s who watched one of my videos recently. And I asked, is somebody who I really value? So I called him up and I said, hey, what did you think of my video? He said, I'm quoting. He said, you look fucking scary.
0: <laughs> he
1: said, first of all, you're red and black, which are the devil's colors. <laughs> and then he said, and you're sitting like a man all macho. I said, I said, person, it's kind of about claiming space. That was sort of the whole gig. And and I love red and black. I have black hair. And it happens to look good and I have lighter skin, so it looks good. And they're like, well, you look, you look fucking scary. And then I told it to one of my friends, who is a man in his 40s, and his response was, okay, boomer. (laughs) And then he said, that guy's not really your demographic anyway. So I think also the way we perceive each other is very wrapped up in who we are, how old we are, what is our race, what is our gender, which is how we really perceive each other about how we speak, how we communicate. All of the things we do in our communication are wrapped up in What demographic are we? And how are we being received by the other demographic? And how much how much how careful do we have to be with that other demographic? How much power do they have over us? So for me, I thought, dude, you have no power over me. I'm going to keep wearing my red and black because I happen to like those colors. But he were my boss. And I was thinking of getting hired. Or maybe I was thinking hoping he would promote me. And he very gently said, you know, you wear red and black all the time. And I think it's scaring the clients. I might think about if I wanted to wear red and black, it's an intersection, right? Of who you are, what you're presenting and how the world is going to receive that. And how much leeway do you
0: have to dress the way you want to? Well, yeah, And I think that's a good point that you brought up there at the end. It's like society has these, you know, like I just got a robe for my birthday and I would love to wear that robe all the time. It's the most comfy thing I've ever owned in my life. But I also understand there's this societal norm that I can't go to a restaurant wearing a robe. I probably could, but, you know, I'd get a lot more looks and people would be like, what is this guy doing? Like, is he even wearing underwear under there? And I think especially in the workforce, there's a much stronger societal norm to dress a certain way. You know, we have this workplace attire and, you know, my friend also brought it up is like, the one thing the study does not really go into depth about is what are what are the breakdowns of the demographics of these women. Like, I would very confidently say a black woman dressing provocatively is going to have a much different reaction than a white woman dressing pro- provocatively. Oh yeah. That's you know I'll definitely contact this um, these people and ask them more questions. But that's one of the things that this study did not you know really talk about was you know what's the breakdown of that. You know, the racial lines in that, because that's another thing you also have to consider when we're talking about how we dress and how we you know, present ourselves to society is j- or race does play a huge factor.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and black women are often told they can't even wear their hair naturally. That's bananas. That's an example of we don't have enough black women in power. So they are literally told what to do with a part of their body by the power structure. That's bonkers town to me, just bonkers, you know. Um, but the, that's why we need to get more people. More, we needed more inclusive workspaces. Um, the other thing I didn't like about the article is I could not believe they said the whole thing about uh, more bitchy. Anytime I read like, oh yeah, this person more bitchy, I, I, <laughs> I'm just like, I actually have a chapter <laughs> in my book called "I'm such a, I'm such a." Uh, crazy bitch and embracing the F bomb. Um, I think the whole title is I'm such a crazy bitch embracing the F bomb and other bombs. Um, and then I have a little quote, it, this, it may not stay in the book. This is a draft. This is a draft. But the quote I have right now is from Lizzo, which says I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when women are calling each other bitchy, to me, that there are three words that keep women, and then the umbrella words under them that keep them oppressed. That's feminism, crazy, and bitch. Um, Slut is probably also a peripheral one, but but those three words are very powerful. And when women are calling each other bitches, not in a positive way, um, but in a negative way, that shows me that they are participating in their own oppression. And there's a lo- there's a much deeper conversation that has to happen. Well, beyond their clothes, because of course, by going after women for the way they look, we are participating in an age old practice of judging women by how they, their, their physicality and their, and their physical presentation and their plumage and what they're, what they're wearing. So for me, the second, if I hear a woman call another woman, a bitch, I think, okay, it's, it's time, you know, cause to me, those, those words need to be never, never used in a negative sense because they're so effective at silencing women, those three words.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because when I'm with the boys, that sounds horrible. When I'm with my male (laughs) friends (laughs) uh, and like we're having (laughs) (laughs) conversations, drinking with the boys. But, you know, going back to your catcalling example, like the only way we're going to be able to create those safe spaces is the people who are doing catcalling are like, all right, you need to slow down. So it's like even in those conversations with the boys, you know, it's like you're having that conversation about who you're dating and you reference a woman as a bitch. It feels so direct derogative. Like if you're dating this person, shouldn't you have, it sounds horrible, but shouldn't you have like some sort of respect for this person, but you're using this word that's bringing her down to somebody below you. But when really, you know, obviously a good relationship is about being on equal footing. And like, even the interesting thing that I've learned from this podcast. So, you know, as I mentioned before we started recording, we have a mostly European audience and we had a story early on about this woman who ran into a, a bride who kind of lost it and wanted her like wanted her bridesmaids to pay like $2,000 to come to the, the wedding. But anyways, so she ended up calling her best maid a cunt. And I bleeped out in the, in the final draft, I bleeped out that word. And I got so many emails from people in the UK being like, why are you bleeping this out? I'm like, well, it just feels very crass. It's like it's such a crass word. But, you know, based on the UK, they use that word all the time. It's such a normal part of their vocabulary. So I think kind of also have to address where you're at, the geographical aspect of the impact of words, how you dress. You know, people are dressing very different in the UK Than they are in the US, you know, now with obviously globalization, you know, people are dressing a little more similar, but there's still those geographical differences um, that you kind of have to bring into the conversation as well. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember actually when I was, I think, in third or fourth grade, I had a teacher who was here on like a teacher exchange or something from Britain. I had been watching some movie set in uh, Britain. And so I walked in and I said something like that person was so bloody mean or something, or that person was such a bloody jerk. And she said, you can't say bloody. That's <laughs> a terrible word. And I, 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 I thought, "What? Well, what do you mean oh, bloody? Who cares? But to her, that was really not okay for her. And I remember thinking, Oh yeah, that's, it definitely is uh, dependent for sure on different places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there are in in America, there are three umbrella words that are used to silence women pretty consistently. And I I would imagine that there's probably a a sister word in other languages that do the same thing just with a different word, although I have no evidence to prove this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then kind of the wrap of the story you had mentioned in kind of the rough draft you sent me about the story about your client. Um, your Asian client who was having trouble at work. And uh, can you just talk more about that? Because I thought it was such an interesting kind of case study on the relationship that people don't even realize they might have at work.
1: Yeah, well, what I found with power and why women, people often say, well, women are horrible to each other, so there's no sexism. And here is what I have seen. Uh, I see it over and over again. So, if you see power as a triangle, and so envision a triangle in your head, and then envision that, like at the very top of the the triangle, almost at the top, and not quite, you make a little line. So, there's like a little mini triangle within the big triangle. That's how most organizations are. So, you've got this little concentrated amount of power at the top. And then at the bottom, you have the least amount of power. Traditionally, and not in all situations, but traditionally, White men have been in that top triangle. And then over the last several decades, we have let more and more women into that triangle. But first of all, there's still not that many women compared to men. And secondly, there is a historic memory of when we weren't allowed to be in there. If you are a woman in the top of that triangle, you can have a feeling of scarcity. And so if you have that feeling of scarcity, you can feel like there's only a spot for one of me. And so if somebody else comes in, I have to leave. And if you're trying to get into that, that triangle, you can think, I got to get that person like me out of there so there's room for me. And that is a wonderful way to keep people oppressed because, of course, the men are up there networking and locking arms and being like, let's go get beers and uh, hire each other and promote each other. And the women are fighting. And I see this over and over and over with my clients. So I gave that example in the book, which is just such a delicious example. And by delicious, it's awful, but it's still delicious. Um, (laughs) Because I find it fascinating. Um, But one of my clients was talking to me and she was a lawyer and she was a partner at a law firm. And she said, you know, I have this new associate who came in and she's just being so mean to me. She's just trying to undercut me in every meeting. She's Cruel! She's eviscerating me. You know, I've had it. I am getting to the point where I, you know I was so excited to hire her, and now I'm going after her, taking up so much of my mental energy. And I said, "We'll call her Jane, since I'm not very creative today." I said, "Jane, I'm just curious." So Jane was a middle aged Asian woman. I said, "I'm just curious. Is this woman a younger Asian woman?" And she said, "How would you possibly know that?" And I said, well, and I explained to her the whole triangle thing. And I said, there is probably a subconscious thing going on that she feels like she can't get into your spot unless she takes you down. So what I would recommend is you go take her into your office and say, listen, put it on yourself. Say, you know, we got off on the wrong foot. I'm really sorry. I think it would be really cool. If actually I mentored you and and I want to help you and basically do everything you can to allay her subconscious fears, if you're up there, she can't go up there. Tell her you're going to help her get up there. And after that conversation, which was 45 minutes, 50 minutes long, um, eventually I mean, I'm not going to say they left best friends, but they left. They were both changed by the conversation, and they eventually started collaborating. They both rose up together. They ended up hiring more people of color. And more, um, more white women and women of color, and they both ascended uh, rather than spending so much time trying to eviscerate each other, which of course takes time and energy and keeps you both down. So I see this over and over and over, and my clients always act like I'm a genius, and I'm really not. <laughs> but but when there's a woman who's, I told a friend, a friend of mine, read that chapter, and she said, "Oh my god, I remember working at FedEx." And there was a woman who was older than me, who looked a lot like me, and she just would eviscerate me. And now I think I understand where that was coming from. And over and over and over again, I see that dynamic playing out. And so for me, I find myself falling into it sometimes. And I have to check myself because I know where it's coming from. But it's a very, very powerful tool because as long as you keep an oppressed group fighting against each other you, you you maintain power because there are all these systems in place for men to network. I mean there are clubs women couldn't even go to until very recently the whole system is set up and women do more childcare so men can go out for beers more and they're just all these systems they play rugby together and all, there's so many systems that are set up for men to spend time together and network and and raise each other up and yet we're we're fighting. That's that's you know we're until we stop doing that we're we're really uh, it's going to be a lot harder for us to gain any kind of equity in society.
0: No, I appreciate you sharing that. That was like the one thing or one of the many things from what you sent me that really like stood out. I was like, you know what, that such a good case study on what's going on and how you know we don't even think about these things that we're just doing these things subconsciously because it's just kind of ingrained in what we've always been taught and what, you know, media is teaching us connecting that back to the first story. So I think it's important, like you said, in that first story as well, is like, you share these stories and give a platform to kind of say, Hey, this is, this is what's going on. And, you know, let's find a way to make it better. Yeah,
1: I totally agree. And I think it's also important to name it. I call that fighting for your spot on the bottom, that triangle thing, fighting for your spot on the bottom. Uh, As long as we keep fighting for our spot on the bottom, we're never going to rise to the top you know, it's just never going to happen. I think that you're absolutely right. That telling these, telling our stories is a really good way of educating. And, you know, when I give my talks, I give statistics and then I give a story and then I, <laughs> then I give statistics and then I tell a story because people remember stories and they're, they, and then you can attach that story to the fact. And they're more likely to remember the fact. If you, if you tell a story first, but I think I mean, again, that's why Me Too was so incredibly powerful. And that's why what you're doing is really important. What you're doing is really important because you are letting people tell their stories and you are talking to all different kinds of people with all different kinds of stories. And I think that's how we kind of shift the paradigm of what people understand about each other and, and how we get along in a unified and positive way is by hearing
0: each other's stories. Well, I appreciate that. Um... Eliza, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful discussion. Listeners, if you'd like to connect more and be more informed, you can do so by heading to elizavancourt.com. Once again, that's www.elizavancourt.com, where you can find more links to her work, including her new YouTube series that we mentioned earlier, Women Amplified. I think you have, as of May 15th, you have two episodes up?
1: Yes, I have two episodes up. And, um, Interestingly enough, one of them got dinged by YouTube (laughs) as very controversial content because the woman talked about postpartum depression. Uh, Very strange. Um, And then the next one that I'm supposed to have up, actually, uh, the woman has been muzzled uh, by her organization. So, it's amplifying women's voices can be tricky. (laughs) But we should be having another one up soon.
0: Yeah, I I watched both of them. I I really liked the, the first one with your friend Liz. It was just such a powerful story that she was able to tell that you specifically, I think she mentioned like 12, 13 people have been seriously affected by COVID. And that's like something that, you know, like I talked about before, like addressing my own privilege, like, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, be in a place where not a lot of people in my life have been affected by COVID. So it's, it's, Like we keep saying, it's, you know, it's important to hear those stories. So I appreciate you giving her a platform to share that story.
1: Yeah. If you can check out that story, Women Amplified, I just started the YouTube channel. So it's very, it's in its infancy, but um, that Liz's story needs to be out there. She has lost, I think at this point, 15 friends. I talked to her yesterday and she said, oh yeah, it's been a good week. I don't think anyone has died yet. And I just thought, my God, you know, so she has important things to say. We're not hearing a lot from women uh, who are living in the Bronx and what they're going through, and that people are dying in their basements because they can't get access to healthcare. And we're not hearing as enough about how it's impacting brown and black people. Uh, so we need to hear. We need to hear those stories. It's really important, and that's why I started the series is to amplify the voices of women that really aren't heard enough or have a really important story to tell. So yeah, if you get the chance, check it out. You might not be able to get into the other one because apparently, it's been dang. So you have to take all your controls off. But um, I'm about to do another one about a woman who is running for office. And it's just... She is really badass. And hopefully, um, people will enjoy that one as well. And there are also tips for not being interrupted on my on my website on my youtube page which i think a lot of women struggle with so uh, if you're if you're sick of being an option, you can check that out as well
0: yeah i think you had like the the leia the force leia and then what the the mortal combat those two i'll just yeah, no, there they'll be a yeah, little I'm
1: gonna, I, yeah i'm gonna do mortal combat next time but this one was using the force because i am absolutely the nerdiest person ever so <laughs> so i think of everything in terms of some sort of sci-fi metaphor. I think of communication like Neo reading the the HTML on the walls of the matrix. And I think of stopping people from interrupting as using the force. So, you know, I'm I'm cool like that. Adam, I can't help it.
0: (laughs) Uh, And then as, before we kind of wrap up this episode, can you speak to the women's bathroom as somebody who's accidentally only been in a women's bathroom once? And, you know, obviously you hear all the myths about the women's bathroom. Just... What are your thoughts on The Women's Bathroom? I
1: don't know, man. If I told you, I might have to kill you. <laughs> so I can't tell you. No. Um, well, you know, so my book was going to be originally called, and we kind of changed the title because we found that there's actually a consistent theme of claiming space. But when I was sort of having fun with titles, I thought of how to communicate like a superhero. But it's really not just about communication. So it probably wasn't the best title, but I wanted superhero in there. Um, And then the subtitle is going to be inspired by conversations in the bathroom. The women's bathroom is like no other. It is an incredible space where women feel safe. You will talk to a woman in the woman's bathroom in a way you would never talk to her in any other circumstances. I mean, I've walked into a woman's bathroom, you know, I'm washing my hands in a restaurant and I say, how you doing? And She says, oh my God, I'm in here and my mother-in-law is just killing me. And, you know, I don't know this woman and we have this conversation about it. And after my talks and seminars, what I found is that often people will follow me to the bathroom and I would end up doing another seminar after the seminar or another talk after the talk, because women would say, I didn't want to ask this in Q&A, but I have to say this thing. And then we would talk about the thing that she wanted to talk about. And I've actually had a record. I've been there, I think it was like, I wrote it in my book. I remember looking over some of my um, uh, my flights to figure out how long it was. I think it was like two hours um, that I was in a bathroom doing another seminar. So now I have to make sure that I schedule my flights way after because I've almost missed my flight several times because of these conversations. But I think the the important thing there to kind of think about is that we really need to have conversations in the sunlight. And as long as we keep our conversations in the dark, as long as we tell our stories in hushed tones, people aren't going to hear our stories. And as long as they don't hear our stories, they won't understand us as well. And if you don't understand someone, it's very hard to help them or advocate for them or become an ally. And so it's hard and it's dangerous sometimes. And I'm not saying everyone should share their story all the time, because it certainly can be it can put you in danger to share your story in certain circumstances. But I think the more we can have our conversations in the sunlight and the more women can feel that they can speak up without having to be in a place where men cannot go. I think the day that that happens is the day we will have really moved her to a place of a more fair and just world. And um, that'll be a better world for all of us.
0: I love that, man. I don't even want to add anything to that because I'll probably ruin it. Uh, <laughs> as, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast. On the internet, hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Eliza, where we take the strangest and most interesting real-life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a local news story, or if you just want to share some of your own comments, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com. And you can find all of our content now centralized on our website at www.watercoolertalkpod.com. That will include any of the links mentioned in the episode past episodes, social media posts, and much, much more. So as I addressed at the beginning of the episode, I usually have my guests close out the show. Hopefully now that we've been talking for an hour and a half, you have a better idea of how you would, you know, those final words. Uh, So the floor is yours. Oh,
1: wow. (laughs) I don't even know. Um, I guess the way that I would end it um, is that as a woman, I think we need to make sure that we are working to claim more space. The way that I see claiming space is to make sure you're visible, to have an inclusive mindset, uh, to approach work and life with an open mind and heart and listen and advocate and believe other women, to make sure that you are taking up space, claiming space with your voice and your body, uh, making sure that you are actually owning the space you are in, shut down things that make you feel emotionally unsafe or get an ally to help you. And if you're an ally listening to this, you are uniquely situated to help women in those situations, network with each other, support each other. Also stop your, this is my nerdy self and on a nerdy note, uh, beware of your emotional kryptonite, uh, don't seed space, uh, look at your past and figure out what brings you to your knees and work uh, to not self-sabotage yourself. And, I think as as women claim more and more space, uh, we will ascend in society to a better place. And I've always sort of believed that humanity is like a bird. And if one wing is too strong, the bird just can't fly right. So if we can make sure that both wings are strong or the entire bird is flying with good equilibrium, because I know there's more than one... Well, maybe it's not an apt analogy anymore, because there are many people who identify as gender fluid. But if there's one group that's too strong, we just can't fly right. And so, in order for us to fly right, we all need to make sure that we're helping any group that isn't as strong, or does not have representation, or is fighting for their spot at the top, to, um, or at least fighting for their fair share, to rise up. When that happens, society as a whole will absolutely rise up and we'll live in a better world.
0: I want to thank you first off very much for coming on the show. I think I had this like weird fear in the back of my mind for this episode, because this is for some reason, like everything I've talked about, the woman's perspective is the one thing I'm most fearful of talking about maybe that's not even the right word Um, because it's just something I don't have experience in you know and I don't want to try to speak to it so I appreciate allowing or this space you know us creating the space to create a productive conversation and help understand how you know me as a man could talk about these issues in a productive manner that creates change instead of just throwing my voice in an echo chamber that's never going to get anything done and I think you know, I appreciate people like you existing in this world, being able to teach people how to be a better human. So thank you very much for coming on the show and being a part of what we're creating here.
1: Well, thank you for amplifying my voice. I really appreciate it. And I thought you did a great job. And one day, maybe I can listen to a podcast about your experience because um you have an equally important experience as do we all.
0: Well, thank you, uh, listeners, until next time this is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world and while many of these stories may seem fake they're absolutely not because they're real in episode a guest a time still enjoying myself ladies and gentlemen Uh, once again thank you to eliza for jumping in on a remote interview to talk about these stories as always, make sure to support her and what she does by following the links in the description of this episode, or by going to our website at www.watercoolertalkpod.com to find all that information in one convenient, perfect place. I'm I'm putting it in the time to make that website beautiful, and I want you to enjoy it. Also, make sure to support Eliza's charity of choice for today's episode, Girl Up. All it takes is I don't know, five bucks. You know, the price of a coffee to help make a difference or even, even just telling a friend, a coworker, someone in your family about a new cause around, you know, hopefully, I mean, the idea of the show around the water cooler at work. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to start, you know, keep those safe distances and make sure to remain sanitary and make sure no one's sharing a water cup. I mean, let's, let's address that right now. Don't share your water cup ever. Let's just, that's just weird. But anyways, supporting good charities that are doing good in this world. It doesn't take a lot. It just takes spreading the message. So anyways, to the corrections. In the first story discussing the decision to never allowing James Bond to be female, Eliza mentioned men being more violent. To add numbers to that fact, according to a study in 2007 by the US Department of Justice, it was found that men commit three times more violent crimes than women do. As for the mention of female director Catherine Bigelow, she won Best Picture and Best Director for The Hurt Locker in 2008 with, I believe, Jeremy Renner? Was that? Yeah, let me, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna trust myself on that one. I'm not gonna fact correct it. And as for many of those figures shared by Eliza, you can find those sources through the Center for the Women, Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film, The Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, the 2008 Theme Report by the MPAA, and the 2020 Diversity Report by UCLA. In the second story in which we had a conversation about women in politics, Gwendolyn Christie played the character Brienne of Tarth in Game of Thrones. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, people have not talked about Game of Thrones since it ended. Did anyone else notice this? Uh, So once again, uh, thank you, David and Dan. Thank you for ruining a decade. And then finally, for the second story, I'd mentioned Roy Moore being elected after stories of him being a predator to teenage girls were released. Uh, That was not true. He did end up losing the election. But fun fact, he was endorsed by Donald Trump. So I'm not going to add anything additional to that. I'm just going to I'm just going to let it sit and uh, walk away. And finally, for our third story, discussing the impact of clothing on our relationships. I did reach out to the author of the study for a bit more information, as we mentioned in our conversation, those questions we had from our conversation. If I do hear back, I will make sure to include an add-on to this episode. And then as a part of this story, I incorrectly called myself attractive. Um, I do, you know, the show is all about being factually correct, and I do want to make it very clear, not only am I attractive, (laughs) I'm also incredibly beautiful handsome as hell, a catch and a half, and, you know, what, an all-around good hombre. Uh, and then our final correction for the episode, the episode in which the bride goes off on the bridesmaid, was episode 11, Wedding Stress, with our good friend Ryan Beale. All right, water coolians, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Eliza for joining us and talking about some of the strangest and most weird news stories the world has to offer. But, as always, that's your corrections, that's your episode, so get out of here! Uh, that, that's going to be a one-and-off one. We're not, <laughs> not singing the ending again. All right, guys. See you next this time. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real.